Is this my PowerPoint? How much could I get this at the, uh, how much could I get for that on a pond? What do you think? I'm not sure. We were teasing yesterday about PowerPoint and my <clears throat> lack of use of said technology. So I told David, I bought a PowerPoint. You see, I've got the power to point to this. I just want you to know, by the grace of God, he gave me the power to point to that. And he says, that's all I need you to do. While we're getting settled, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 9. While you're turning there, let me tell you a little story. Not sure if it's true. I'm going to say it's not true, but anyways. This couple were traveling through Louisiana. And they were just doing what mature couples do. They were chatting about this and that. And the other thing is they were driving along. And they come into this city or town, whatever it was, called Natchitoches, Louisiana. A $20 name. You find them in Cape Breton all the time, like Wicogamon, places like that. And Natchitoches. So they were discussing back and forth, and it started rather friendly and amiable, about how to properly pronounce Natchitoches, Louisiana. Well, they came to no solid conclusion. In fact, it got a little bit heated. And then they had to stop for lunch. So they pull into this place to eat, and they get to the counter, and this nice young lady says, can I help you? And he says, the gentleman said, well, look, now listen, before we order, we got a little discussion here, and I, I'm hoping you can settle this for us. Could you please pronounce the name of where we are, but please do it slowly? She says, okay, I can do that. So she leans forward, looks, at her, looks them in the eye, and she says, Burger King. That's where they are. She answered the question, didn't she? Matthew chapter 9 is a jumping off point to a series that I put together on what I call the characteristics of the unsaved. This particular board, I don't have the, the, the header on this one here. I have another bigger uh, uh, board that has 10 slots that I use uh, when I'm going to stay in one place for a, a period of time and do this, and it has a header that says, The Characteristics of the Unsaved. Matthew chapter 9 is the beginning point to this series, and I'm going to draw your attention to verse 9. Help if my notes were not upside down. There we are. Verse 9 is the introduction. Matthew 9, verse 9, it says, Then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. And so it was as, <clears throat> as the Lord Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, to sit, came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to themselves, Sorry, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, but when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
In those last two verses, there are no less than three principles that the Lord uses of the unsaved, which are foundational to this series. They are in order, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's talking to the nation of Israel primarily. That's his audience. He's targeting them because of inherent problems, weaknesses they have. Inherent means it's just part of who they are. There's no excuse for it. I'm not making excuses. I'm simply explaining. Inherently, they believe that they don't need any help. That they are in need of no advice or guidance. Especially as it has to do with spiritual things. They're the religious leaders of the day, after all. And the Lord uses a very popular, common analogy here to communicate this, that being going to a doctor. Since I was with you last in 2014, it actually happened about a year ago, I had a brother who died. A couple years older than me. If you knew my family at all, the six of us, out of the six of us, he was the only one who was in any kind of physical condition at all. In fact, he was in prime physical condition. He's a guy who wouldn't think twice of stepping off, the, off of the uh, front door here, wouldn't matter what kind of clothes he was wearing, and jog to the Micmac Mall. He wouldn't even think twice of that. He walked and jogged everywhere and on a bike his whole life. In fact, to prove my point, he never got a driver's license, never could drive a car, never did drive a car, never sat behind the wheel of a car, raised a family with three children, and his wife was the wheel person, wheel man, wheel lady, wheel person. Hard to believe, isn't it? But that's kind of, kind of condition he was in, 150 pounds, 160 pounds, five foot nine, five foot ten, five nine probably. Terrific shape. And he died in four months from when he went to the doctor. And the doctor simply said, why did you wait so long to come and see me? And then he sent him to a specialist, and the specialist said, why did you wait so long to come and see me? It's too late. There's nothing we can do. His lungs were gone. They were gone. It's a horrible way to go. I was there when he died. Not pretty. And why did it happen? Because he would not go to a doctor. Why didn't he not go to a doctor? Mike, in the case of my brother, he was afraid of doctors. He was afraid of dentists. He didn't drive because he was afraid of driving. He lived his life in fear. Very unlike the rest of us, if you know my family. They're all more of the cut than I am. Perhaps a little... I could use a little bit of fear once in a while because I just forge ahead and tackle things. But the point is, when there's a little bit of evidence there's something's not right, you need to be willing to go to a physician. In a spiritual sense, when the Lord lays it upon your heart that you're not exactly ready to walk into his presence, should you die today, you need to be willing to go for help. You need to be willing to ask for help. And then he says, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not 
sacrifice. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day. Keep that in mind. He's saying to them, and I put A's on this to make it a little bit easier for me to understand. It's not about your actions, sacrifice. It's about your attitude. Your willingness to cry out for mercy. Your willingness to humble yourselves, admit a need, and ask for help. Learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not about action. It's about attitude. What's your attitude? Then he goes on to say, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. At the very foundation of this whole series, which I've got probably now 18 of these names, you'll see two of them this morning, these words rather, not names. I've got now 18 of them. I haven't even preached the last four or five. I haven't had an opportunity yet. I need to get a longer audience. Not a bigger audience, just a longer audience. More exposure so I can get them all in. And as it is, I'm doing two on a message as a rule. The Lord says, I want to save you. I came to call sinners to repentance. That's what I came for. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, of whom I am chief. The worst sinner is already saved. You may, you may be sitting here this morning saying, Clifford, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. doesn't matter. Because the word of God says the worst sinner is already in. So the bar has been set. And guess what? You come underneath it. You clear you're not worse than Paul. Paul punished and slew people because they were Christians, because they were willing to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, in his death burial, and resurrection. They were willing to, to confess themselves sinners and ask to receive the free gift of salvation. For that reason, Paul punished and slew, murdered people. And God has set that as the highest mark on the bar. He wants to save souls. That's what he came for. So our first characteristic right here behind the, the white, which I'll, I'll reveal in a moment, is in verse 2. And in verse 2 we read, and behold, brought, they brought to him a paralytic living, sorry, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith. I always encourage you, don't read too quickly. Seeing their faith, not his faith. He may have been incorporated in the there, but the point is he's identifying the porters, those who carried him, those who brought him. You see, because he was a paralytic. He was laying on a bed. He was incapable of coming on his own because he was helpless. He could not get there on his own. He needed help to get there. As do many sinners. Not all. This is not true of every unsaved person. It's true of a lot. Some people come to salvation and maybe you're numbered amongst these who got saved entirely on your own. I heard a guy preach when I was at Bible school who uh, represented Scripture Gift Mission, I believe it was called, and, and somebody asked him, he opened it for questions, and somebody asked him, how is it that you came to, to spend your life, because you already identified this in your, in your message, 
you've spent your whole life since you were saved, from day one practically, in a, in a mission of, of distributing gospel tracts. How is that? He said, well, my salvation was a result of me trying to get away from all this stuff and trying to find an answer apart from religion, is what he put it. So he went to Morocco, to the beaches of Morocco. It's a nice place to go if you're going to run away, by the way. That's where he went, thinking he was going to get away. Now, there was a few other incentives in Morocco, but we won't go into that. But that's where he went. And he was walking on the beach in Morocco at dusk one night. And he saw a piece of paper on the ground, and he picked it up. And it was a little too dark to read at that time. So he put it in his pocket, wait, wait, waited until he got back to his room. He took out this piece of paper, and guess what? It was a gospel tract. So he read it. And right then and there, in that motel room that night, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he realized the power of this little leaflet. It was God's word, you see. And so he said, I'm going to spend my life seeing that other people can get pieces of paper just like this and perhaps find Jesus Christ as their Savior. See, nobody actually helped. No person actually helped. He got there on his own. If I, if I uh, pan this audience for different testimonies, I'm sure I'd find a few others that were similar to that, all by themselves. Now, many of them, many of your testimonies will be that mom and dad knelt me down by the bed or something like that at five years of age. That's the mean average, it seems, for some reason or other, raising a Christian home. Seems to be. So essentially, mom or dad helped, or the Sunday school teacher, or the camp counselor, or any number of other individuals helped. These porters helped this man. He had no help. There was no help for him. So they said, we need to get him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they carried him. And the Lord complimented their faith. The faith of the helpers to bring this paralytic to the Lord Jesus Christ. I came to Christ while I was saved on my own, sitting in the middle of a meeting while the preacher was preaching. I was in that meeting because my wife's boss had a burden for us, for both of us. He came to our wedding, so he got to meet me. And... Uh, thought, boy, that poor soul needs Christ. And he was right. I did. I did. And so he prayed for us, and then he invited us out. And he facilitated us coming and coming and coming and coming and coming until finally one night, while the four of us were sitting in a pew in Oakwood Bible Chapel, February the 21st, 1973, while the preacher carried on his message, I realized that night, it's me. I'm the sinner. I came into, these, uh, into this assembly where the Word of God was used. First time I've ever really seen the Word of God that I'm aware of. Or read it is what I'm saying. I mean, I've seen Bibles, but you know what I mean. First time I've ever really taken any note of what the Word of God says in, in, a, in, a, in a fairly, I consider fairly quick succession of meetings, maybe six or eight meetings, I realized that night I'm a sinner. It's me. You see, I was, I was somewhat... Self-righteous and arrogant, much like these Pharisees. I kind of, in my mind, I had my arms folded and figured, I'm fine, it's everybody else who's out of line. And that night I realized, no, it's me. So I bowed my head and put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm standing here this morning because of that. 
Nobody else knew, nobody talked to me, nobody counseled me, nobody asked me, nobody followed me up, per se. But this couple who brought us, he in a sense did, because he had kept inviting us out. Kept seeing that we were there on Sunday night after Sunday morning. He called me at two in the afternoon, he called the house, and if Norning answered the phone, he, he would say very, very professionally, very discreetly, he says, he would say to Norlene, could you put, could you put your husband on the phone? He thought it was more appropriate if he asked me. Very smart of him, actually, if you think about it in retrospect. And he would ask me, Clifford, tonight after the meeting, why don't you come over, you and, you and your wife, we're going to have cake and tea at the house. I said, that'd be nice. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe we'll do that. You see, I had no more intention of going that evening mean than flying to the moon with or without a spaceship. But I went because there was going to be cake in it for me, you see. Sarah Lee, first time I ever heard or saw or tasted a Sarah Lee cake was at that house. I say that because this particular lady, his wife, was not capable, physically or mentally. She had real problems, and she, cooking and preparing this stuff for guests just was not in her constitution. She just couldn't do this. So she discovered Sarah Lee in the frozen food section. I'm told they don't even make them anymore, at least they're not easy to find. It's now McCain's, but they look exactly like a Sara Lee, and apparently they taste about the same. You know, they weren't highly skilled people. The man, although he was a founding member of that assembly, he was a treasurer for many years. He and his family, as a brother who's an elder, and a sister who's the wife of an elder, I don't think he ever delivered a message in, a, in the pulpit ever in all of my years, 43 years now that I've been in that assembly one way or another. Commended and sent out from there. I don't think he ever preached. But he sure helped me, didn't he? So my question is, are you looking up here? Look at, look up here. Who are you helping? Who are you helping to come to Christ? Who are you bringing? <laughs> Maybe on a stretcher. But what it means is that the stretcher, I think, is a picture of the fact that sometimes it's, it's, it's going to take a little work. You might have to dig in your pocket and, and where the cobwebs are in that wallet and pull out a little bit of money and, and it might cost you money for a dinner or something, a supper, or a Tim Hortons, to get this guy to listen or his girl to listen and eventually to come under the sound of the gospel. Who are you helping? Will the Lord compliment you? for your faith, and believing if you bring this person under the sound of the gospel, they might just get saved, because Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Who are you helping? He goes on to say here, and at once some of the scribes, no, let me go back to verse 2, sorry I didn't finish it. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son of God, sorry, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Jesus knowing their thoughts. You see, this one says within themselves. Earlier, they actually were speaking in such a way that they were hoping he would hear. This time they didn't say anything audible. But he knew what they were thinking because he knows your thoughts. In fact, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, 9 says he knows the imaginations of the thoughts of the heart. He knows your thoughts before you completely form them. What you're going to think 
in 20 minutes from now, he already knows. Isn't that scary? Should be. That's how well he knows us. He knew their thoughts, and he said to them, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, in verse 4, said, why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. In those few verses I just read, he mentioned the forgiveness of sins three times. <clears throat> Salvation is fundamentally about dealing with your sin. Let's understand this. We shake and bake this, and I'm not being critical. Just, I mean, I could find lots in the red hymn book back there or the black hymn book that use similar poetic language. But when we sing pieces of music, sometimes way too soft a language is used. So it needs a little bit of explanation. Don't throw the hymn out necessarily. Just explain it once in a while. And I'm not saying that to your song leaders. I'm saying it in general. Understand, that's, that's a hymn. That's written by a man. This is God's word. Written by the Holy Spirit of God. For a holy man of God spoke it here, moved by the Holy Spirit. That's how it was authored. And hopefully the hymn writers are going to the word of God for the subject of their hymns. But salvation is about forgiveness of sins. And then he says, this is the fourth principle. I've given you three. If you are well, you have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, that's number one. Number two, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Number three, he came out to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Number four, now you've got a four-legged chair, much like what you're sitting on. Before we had a three-legged stool. It will work, but it's not really that stable. Not really that stable. So now we've got four. What is number four? That you might know. Verse six. That the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now this is a very important distinction and designation he makes here. It's not just power to forgive sins. It's power on earth to forgive sins. Why is that there? Because we need to understand that salvation has to be dealt with Sin has to be dealt with here and now. Because once you get into eternity, it's too late. So he says, he has power on earth. So that you might know he has power on earth to forgive sins. That's why that distinction is there. Because these religious leaders need to know that. You have sin. And I can deal with that sin here and now. But once you die, you're on your own. And your own righteousness is not going to be good enough, I'm telling you right now. He tells them this all through, the, especially Matthew, but the four Gospels. So this first characteristic is a man who is helpless. Couldn't get to Christ by himself. He needed help. The Word of God says to us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, we are without strength. Without strength. This paralytic had no strength in his legs. And left to ourselves, we have no strength to come to Christ without the Spirit of God's conviction. For the Holy Spirit convicts the world, the world, all sinners of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me. 
Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. That's all in John 16, 8, 9, 10, 11. That's what the Spirit of God came to do. And he will. He convicted me that night. Clifford, it's you. You're the one. Stop looking around. It's not anybody else. It's you. I came to save you. I love you. I died for you. Stop thinking about anybody else. That's what he essentially weighed upon my heart. It didn't speak to me in an audible tongue, but I, that's what I understood that night from the Word of God by the Spirit of God. I was without strength. I needed God's help. The second installment this morning is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. We jump around a little bit in Matthew 9. The first five all come from Matthew 9. And then I venture forth into the uh, far reaches of the word of God for the other 13. It says in verse 9, while he spoke these things, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. Who was this ruler? His name was Jairus. Ruler of what? Are you listening to this? Ruler of the synagogue. He's one of singularly the most powerful people walking the streets at this time. It would be like the mayor or the premier of the province all of a sudden walking in the back door. Not that I'm putting those two on the same level. I'm just giving you an idea of visibility Coupled with power and authority and a bit of persona. His presence was formidable. So what does he do? Well, he's got a 12-year-old daughter who, when he left the house, was in the process of dying. And now she's already died. He was notified of this. But he says... He comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand, this man would be dressed in a, in, a, in, a, in a garb or an attire suitable to his office. Everybody knew who he was. He fell on his face at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the other two parallel passages, Mark, 9, or Mark, and, um, Mark 5 and Luke, uh, was it Luke 8, you would see that. He fell at his feet. That's a very visible identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not embarrassed. Why not? Because the life, whatever hope his daughter had, hung in this balance. And he was holding back nothing. And he tells us in salvation, listen, you need to understand. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no Salvation, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him, John 14.6. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Jairus realized the only hope for my daughter ever, for me to ever see her again or speak to her again, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope you have of heaven is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he bowed at his feet in public and asked for help. It pictures 
something of going to the physician because I have a problem and I need help. And so this man did just that. And so the Lord said, let's go. And the disciples, at least Peter, James, and John, because we know those three went inside with the Lord Jesus Christ when they get to their destination. It says in verse 23, to pick up the account. There's a parenthesis in between, but we're not dealing with that this morning. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, keep in mind, this is a man of, of, of substance, a man who was fairly comfortable. They would say on PEI, he wasn't missing any meals. He could afford to buy his food. So he was afford to hire whalers and musicians. Some of you have seen uh, presentations of places like Natchitoches, Louisiana. Louisiana is famous for this. And Baton Rouge, where they have a funeral marching through the street carrying the coffin. And there's minstrels playing. This is kind of what you had here. Except it wasn't joyous. It was greatly grievous. They were wailing. I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's blood-curdling to hear this. I had the opportunity going to Serbia to preach back in 07 to hear this. I'm telling you, put the fear of God into you to hear some of these people wail. And it was a noisy crowd. That's the adjective used here. It was a raucous crowd. And the Lord said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him, they mocked him to scorn. I'm amazed by this verse. I would think that he would have turned to Jairus, who was a highly commanding individual, and say, and this is his daughter's, Funeral, this is the man paying for it. This is the man who, who, if he steps in front of the crowd, would go silent in just a matter of seconds. Because he's going to speak, you see. And it would be very easy and very proper for him to just say, we need you to all clear the room, please, quickly. And it would be just a matter of, and they'd be gone. The Lord didn't do that. The Lord stood in front of that crowd. They did not know who he was, and I suspect they didn't care. And he didn't just ask him to leave. He throws the gauntlet down. He says, she is not dead, she's sleeping. He brings this scorn upon himself on purpose. He raises the awareness and the visibility of this act that he's going to perform, this miracle. He drew all eyes onto himself. He put himself under the microscope. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Because he was going to prove a point, you see. Because this girl was lifeless. Every one of these ends in the suffix L-E-S-S. And so the second word is lifeless. She was without life. Now this is, a, this is an illustration, this miracle. The sinner is not physically dead, but he is spiritually dead. This is an important distinction. I'm going to tell you why. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says... And you, I think, quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. 
I need to punctuate that because we have a doctrine out there today, very easy to find it. You don't have to even look to find it. It'll find you. And part of the underlying uh, explanation and theology of the, of the doctrine is a very verbose, forceful presentation that because we're dead, we can't possibly ask to be saved because the dead man can't speak. And I'm serious. That's one of the strongest arguments they present. Along with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross for all. He only died for some. And you have no say in this matter. You do have a say in this matter. You do have a say in this matter. Because you're not physically dead. You're spiritually dead. And you do realize oftentimes, and there's many testimonies in this room that would attest to this, that you get into a, a situation, especially if you're living a very aggressive, sinful life, where perhaps you've had a very uh, serious one, two, three brushes with death. One of my friends was in a uh, uh, drug coma several times. Then he woke up in a jail cell. Didn't even know what day it was. Had no idea how he got there. But the police were happy to inform him that he now had a DUI in his record that was going to follow him for the rest of his life. And that's what woke him up. Now I've marked my life and I, and I managed to survive one more time from one of these perilous, sinful escapades that ran, in this case, for two or three nights, two or three days. I've, I, I've dodged another bullet, that's kind of the way he put it. But he woke up in the old Gray Bar Motel and didn't have any idea why he was there. Believe me, he knew what a mess he had made of his life. Even though he was spiritually dead, he was able to figure out what a mess he had made of his life. And something had to change. And sin will do that. It will wake you up sometimes, like a, like a dunk in a cold ice bath. <gasps> Whoa! Get your attention. You've dodged a bullet here. Smarten up. Go get help. You need a physician. Go and get some help. But it's not a physician you need. It's someone who can point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need what the paralytic had. You need somebody who is going to carry you or help you to get to Christ. That's what you need. That's the help you need. Because Christ came into this world to save sinners. And our principal verse here is that he has power on earth to forgive sin. It's always about sin. We have to stop pushing this off the table and off of our thinking process or pad in our brain and put it back on there. It's about sin, beloved. That's what it's about. He came into the world to save sinners. Came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The unrighteous, the godless. These are all words that the New Testament uses to describe the sinner. You are without life. You need eternal life. It says here in our, in our passage, but when the crowd was put outside, he went in, verse 25 is where I am, and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. It says in, in, Mark, in Luke, rather, 
Luke 8, that, 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 that <clears throat> he, he said he basically had the girl walk around, and then he, he called for people to, to get her some food to eat. She needs some sustenance. But you know, when that girl walked the streets for the rest of her life, especially being a famous person's daughter, they say, aren't you the one who died? How is it that you're walking today? And she would answer, I met the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how. He gave me eternal life. If somebody asked me, Clifford, why are you so adamant to present Christ to sinners? Because I know what it is to be saved. That's why. Because I met the Lord Jesus Christ that night in February of 1973. And he changed my life completely. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In my life, they did. It took a while. But the Spirit of God took up residence at that instant. And I was born again by the Spirit of God. And you see, that's what this characteristic speaks to. You need spiritual life. You need to be born again by the Spirit of God. I suspect that my time is gone and I'm going to have to stop. But I kind of would like to take you to John 3 and show you about Nicodemus being born again or being, a, being told by the Lord Jesus Christ twice directly. And then he references it a third time the Lord does in his discussion with Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. And then he describes in verse 9, you need to be spiritually born. You need to be spiritually born. That's what it is to be born Again, to have spiritual life. Spiritual death means that you're separated from God by your sin. So dealing with your sin, having your sin dealt with at the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ who bore my sin in his own body in the tree, 1 Peter 2.24, having that dealt with, now I am embraced by God in salvation. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Our brother at the Lord's Supper this morning read, in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the confidence that the believer has because he knows that his sin has been dealt with. And he knows that his sin is what separated him from God in the first place. But he also knows that he puts faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. You can do that this morning. Perhaps while I've been preaching, you've already done it, much like I got saved all those years ago. But I would suggest to you, I would employ you, I would encourage you if you don't understand what I'm saying to you this morning, but you sense that you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, that you talk to me or talk to someone here. Get some help. Because the Lord has power on earth while you're still here, kicking and breathing to save your soul. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together this morning to look at these simple truths. There, there's nothing profound and, and deep about this. It's, it's, it's really entry-level information on the subject of salvation. I pray, Lord, weigh the word of God on hearts today. Give us a desire to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who to know is life eternal. Oh, God, I pray. Work in hearts to that, to that end, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.